Good morning and welcome to Sunday Take for January 21st, 2024. I'm your host, Blois Olson, and we have a big show for you today uh, on this Sunday morning as hopefully the temperatures get a little warmer this week and you're enjoying your morning coffee or tea and uh, a, a calm Sunday morning, whether you're headed to church or reading the newspaper. It is, uh, it's striking how quickly this political season has gotten off to a sprint. Tuesday will be the New Hampshire primary, just a week after the Iowa caucus, and we'll be in this kind of sprint to November. My goal is to pace myself and, frankly, pace the conversation. We don't know in January what's going to happen in July, August, September, October, or November. We can read the tea leaves, we can watch the dynamics, but ultimately it's the day's stories that will aggregate and accumulate into the narrative of the year. This past week, Minnesota job numbers showed that we gained some jobs, but there's still a sense of uncertainty despite a roaring stock market of the economy, and ultimately the economy is the number one issue that people follow during presidential campaigns. Speaking of presidential campaigns, we're going to check in with Dean Phillips from New Hampshire and get a sense before Tuesday's primary. Let's face it, Representative Phillips has gained more traction than I think many people did. And while winning would be a shock on Tuesday, his percentage will show a certain number of people Democrats dissatisfied or uninspired by President Biden. Similarly, on the Wisconsin, the Republican side, we will have more insight into the guide of the party. Of course, the Iowa caucuses represent a small number and polls have shown Trump is leading. But could Nikki Haley upset Trump? in New Hampshire. Anything's possible on election day, and that's why we watch it. So when we come back, Dean Phillips on what's going on in New Hampshire. I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. My first guest this Sunday is Representative Dean Phillips. He's on the road in New Hampshire. He had a rally Friday night. He's got rallies today and uh, throughout the weekend. It's all retail politics from here. Representative Phillips, thanks for joining us on Sunday Take. Hey, boys, great to be with you. You know, I, I think, you know, there's the events that make headlines throughout the week, but just set the scene for us. What's the vibe? What's what's the energy in New Hampshire right now? Well, I'll tell you, you know, what I'll tell you, as someone who hasn't done this before, obviously, it is a most remarkable practice of democracy. I, I really wish Minnesotans, our whole country could uh, come out for a day and see how seriously they take this. It is embedded in the culture where all the presidential candidates, except, of course, President Biden, 
uh, are here, uh, pounding the pavement, walking through the snow, doing town halls, answering questions, facing the press, and really being assessed, if you will, interviewed by people who take this really seriously and have a lot of experience. So the vibe right now is really exciting. It, uh, we've been at this for 10 weeks only. I uh, went from 0% to now 28% in the last tracking poll. And, you know, events have gone from a handful of people to, you know, 100, 150 and coffee shops. And it's really exciting. And I'm thrilled that young people are seemingly now getting energized by our campaign here, at least. And uh, people coming out, getting excited and practicing democracy, uh, which we surely need to do more of. As you contemplated this run and you um, looked at numbers and, you know, polls are one thing, energy is another, but also... You know, just in talking to you and watching things, there's there's a I, I feel like a deeper conviction that you've found in this. How deep yes. is that conviction uh, past New Hampshire? Uh, it is very deep. Lois. You know, th- this year has been a tra- well, the past year, I should say, was a transformative one for me in many ways. Uh, I went to Vietnam. I went to the site where my father, Artie Pepper, was killed in the war. Uh, it was a very moving and um, uh, inspirational visit. And he gave his life uh, to our country, uh, one of a million Americans since our nation's founding to do so. And as I watched my own party actually start to suppress candidates, to suppress voters and suppress debate, uh, I thought that it's the very least I can and should do, which is to participate. And it's not animus towards President Biden. Uh, It is actually out of love for my country. And I simply wish more people would participate. I called on others, candidates who are better known than me, uh, to do so. And in the absence of their willingness or courage, uh, I thought, if not, not, if not now, when, if not me, who? And this is a conviction. And I do intend to keep this going. I do intend to demonstrate to Democrats and independents that there is a person who can beat Donald Trump in this next election. And that is likely me. And Blois, if it is somebody else, my goodness, stand up, jump in the race. The water is warm, because if we fail to practice democracy doesn't matter your politics doesn't matter your policy interests uh we're going to be in big big trouble and i'm so glad i'm doing this because it's the greatest journey on which i have ever been joyful reinvigorating and energizing one of the you talked about young people getting more energized Uh, young people are likely to be a challenge uh for democrats this uh upcoming election year especially with divided feelings on things like the palestinian uh, conflict and Hamas uh, in Israel. Uh, what other issues do you feel like young people are really concerned about? Because I feel like there's issues that get headlines like student loan cancellation sure. and healthcare, but but I feel like it, that might be too simple. Well, I'll tell you, I you know, it's frankly what I'm hearing from young people is not dissimilar from what I'm hearing from working people and even retirees, which is uh, a combination of costs and chaos. And that seems universal right now, Blois, from New Hampshire all the way to the West Coast. You know, life is too expensive for people. And it is a result of inaccessible health care. 25 million Americans have no coverage at all. Uh, housing, way too expensive. Mortgage rates, of course, have skyrocketed. Uh, and then also education. Uh, we are still not a country uh, that uh, ensures that young people can go through pre-K all the way through college without burdening themselves with massive amounts of debt. And then the other is this. People are just disgusted. They're repulsed by what is happening in Washington. I know from the inside how dysfunctional and ridiculous it is. And unlike you and me, Blois, who grew up uh, at least for part of our upbringing in a country in which Democrats and Republicans ultimately got the work done, led the country, passed a budget, 
uh, shook hands, broke bread, and ultimately worked together. You know, younger generations have not even experienced that, and they're given up. And I'll tell you, based on my last number of rallies, including one last night that had about probably 50 college and high school students at it, uh, there's something happening. And it is my hope and expectation that as I continue the race, uh, we'll be attracting more young people because the fact of the matter is, you know, men in their 80s are not going to be the ones that either energize young people nor can lead the country to the future. And I know we all want to turn the page. And I'm simply representing the exhausted majority of Americans on the center right and the center left. And that's time to rise, because if we don't do it now, Blois, I think we are in big, big trouble. My guest is Dean Phillips. He's in New Hampshire. He's campaigning ahead of Tuesday's primary. Representative Phillips um, came to light this week about uh, the media and MSNBC that they hadn't had you on. And it's one thing for the Biden campaign not to engage you. It's another thing for Democrats to be angry. But any sense of of what and why is and and I say that as you know somebody who really does try to talk to everyone and make sure that that you get all the perspectives, especially here on Sunday mornings when we want to have a cup of coffee and maybe get a little smarter for the week. Any sense of why, you know, the, you know, leading democratic cable network would not have you on at all? Well, sure. It's, it's a symptom of a much broader disease voice. And that disease is fear. Uh, when you rely on access to information, uh, access to content, access to people, You don't want to do something to upset uh, that pipeline, if you will, especially in media where you rely on that to attract eyeballs and ad revenue. Uh, We we know from uh, anecdotal evidence and uh, from others who have told us that there is an effort to deplatform, to threaten. We have someone working on our campaign right now who has to use a pseudonym because of Democratic kind of committee threats to anybody who would work with my campaign. uh, They'll be blackballed. Same is true with media. That's the only way, Blois, you can explain that CNN uh, has hosted a one-hour town hall individually with every single GOP candidate, from Mike Pence to Ron DeSantis to Nikki Haley, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, to, of course, Donald Trump. And all of them, some of them already out of the race, uh, most of them polling in single digits. Uh, I'm number two here in the Democratic primary, of course, and that has not been offered. MSNBC, not a single invitation in 90 days. Uh, forget my presidential campaign. I'm also the ranking member of the Middle East Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs with a war raging in Gaza and Israel. So I think you understand, and so do listeners. Uh, the good news is MSNBC just yesterday finally sent up a reporter. And maybe uh, on Tuesday here, there might be a little January surprise coming that will wake up the media to the reality that Americans don't want Trump and Biden uh, and they're looking for alternatives. And uh, that narrative might switch in a big way uh, next Tuesday evening. Looking ahead to Tuesday, uh, what success look like? What What do you obviously? I always love the feeling of election day. I talk about yeah. this all the time because you just don't know, and there's yeah. this this unknown, and there's so many, there's so few unknowns in life these days that yeah. you just don't know when you wake up on election day. You could win by a big number, you could lose by a little number. What, what do you say success, and then where do you go, and what kind of operation have you set up in those other states? Sure. Well, let me start by saying, you know, I've already been successful because I did what someone had to do, which is demonstrate that anyone who's 35 years old, uh, who's born in the United States of America, can do this, uh, can shake it up, can be uh, the the person that recognizes that democracy has to be practiced. And I got to tell you, just the last 90 days, Blois, 
has been a wonderful success. Uh, the conversations, what has opened my my heart, my mind, what I've learned, all of that's successful. As for uh, Tuesday night, uh, success in my estimation would be somewhere maybe in the 20s. You know, I started at zero, very little name recognition, running against an incumbent president that has a massive write-in campaign, a super PAC, every cabinet member and uh, the mayors from Massachusetts and the governor coming up here to try to support his effort. Uh, I think we're going to see two things on Tuesday, boys. Uh, a very weak incumbent uh, who should be getting in the 80-plus percent range, the same thing Clinton and Obama did as incumbents. I think he's going to be very weak, and I think I'm going to surprise. I don't know what the number will be. Uh, somewhere in the double digits would be outstanding. If we're in the 20s, that would be great. Uh, but it will be a beginning. I will be heading to Michigan, South Carolina, and then other Super Tuesday states, and we'll be back home in Minnesota uh, for March 5th to vote myself. And I'm going to continue because at the end of the day, boys, this is about a single thing, preventing the return of Donald Trump to the White House. And that means I have to introduce myself, uh, keep going. And once the polls show, and they will, that Joe Biden will not be able to beat him, uh, and I will, I do believe uh, people will come around and open their eyes and end this ridiculous delusion. Uh, that's my obligation. And if it is Joe Biden, voice that uh, somehow miraculously recovers uh, and I can't demonstrate through the data that I can win, then I'll get behind him uh, because I think that's what we should all be looking at objectively uh, and with tenacity. One kind of final point here, mostly for, you know, my inside crowd, but also because you know it matters and, and it is not without mention uh, other places. Resources. What kind of resources yep. are you going to need to continue and, and where are they going to come from? Well, I have uh, provided seed capital to my campaign, of course. No access to Democratic donor lists or Democratic fundraising professionals and uh, a very small finance team. So I seeded my campaign to get this going. And uh, over the last few weeks, boys, uh, fundraising has really taken off. Uh, grassroots donors from around the country, five, ten, twenty dollar people, many, many thousands, uh, who are starting to pay attention. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the country, boys, do not want Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And people are starting to wake up to the fact there is an alternative. And I know another thing: the country would be better served, and actually, I think wants a Nikki Haley Dean Phillips matchup in November. Uh, the problem is we have two parties that really do prefer coronations rather than competitions. And I think that's a, a conversation we should have down the road because it's becoming tragic and people have to wake up. Representative Phillips, I know you have more events on the road. I really appreciate you joining me from New Hampshire. Hey, Blois, thank you. And uh, to everybody, just vote on primary March 5th day because we have a crisis of participation and we need it. Thanks, everybody. Representative Dean Phillips here on Sunday Take. When we come back, what else should we know about New Hampshire? From Wall Street Journal reporter John McCormick. I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Joining me now is Wall Street Journal reporter John McCormick. He's on the ground in New Hampshire, and he's covered Iowa, New Hampshire, presidential primaries, and this process before, and uh, he's no stranger to the Sunday take. So, John, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks, boys. Greetings from a, a chilly uh, Nashua, New Hampshire. Well, um, what's the mood? I mean, it feels like you've covered a lot of these presidential races and, you know, there's no surprises who the front runners are. There's challengers, but they don't seem to be getting much traction. They're, what's the mood in New Hampshire right now? 
Yeah, it's it's uh, surprisingly quiet for the uh, weekend before the New Hampshire primary. I uh, I've been following Nikki Haley around quite a bit the last couple of days. I was at one of her stops yesterday and uh, talking to a local guy, who's a former state legislator in New Hampshire, and uh, you know, pretty active in the Republican Party. And he he basically just said, you know, this is kind of like uh, you know turnout in the even for the events is kind of down in his view because. Nobody's out kicking the tires. Everybody seems to kind of think they know what's going to happen here. And if, if you know your company is going to buy a Chevrolet, what's what's the point of going over to the uh, you know Ford dealership to kick the tires? That's a pretty good metaphor. Is there good and does she have energy? Does she, I mean this is obviously she's invested a lot in New Hampshire. New Hampshire voters are historically independent. They say, um, you know, will you know? Is there a sense that if anybody could do it, she's the one in New Hampshire? Yeah, I mean, if, if somebody is going to beat Trump here, it certainly will be her. Uh, and you mentioned the importance of independent voters, and, and they're, they are here in large numbers. Typically, the Republican primary here will have be as much as 40 percent uh, independent voters. Um, and so, you know, that that is going to give her sort of the best runway possible of any of these you know immediate states in the in the near future. So if, if she can't pull up a win here, it, it seems like, you know, going to be very challenging for her to do it in her home state of South Carolina, which is sort of the next major contest after after New Hampshire. There's there's contests in New, New in uh, Nevada, but uh, it's it's weird out there. They're going to have a caucus and a primary, and the candidates aren't really seriously competing there. So the next real like serious primary would be uh, in late February in South Carolina, and Haley will have to decide. You know, e- either she wins in New Hampshire and has a bunch of momentum and, and maybe this, the narrative of this campaign, the primary campaign changes, but if that doesn't happen, she's going to have a tough decision on her hands. You, you don't want to, as a, as a home state politician, you don't want to get beat in your own home state. It's usually not good for your political future. And uh, if 2024 doesn't work out for her, then maybe 2028 would be something that she would look at. So she'll have to decide if she really wants to gut it out until uh, the South Carolina primary and, so there'll be uh, we'll we'll see the the next you know forty eight seventy two hours will tell us a lot about this uh, this primary. When I uh, texted you earlier and asked about how New Hampshire was and how it compares to Iowa, you said Iowa is always better. What's the difference between the two? Oh boy, I, I hope uh, CCO's fifty thousand watts don't reach the uh, East Coast on this broadcast because it'll it'll get me in trouble. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm. I'm a homeboy. You know, I, I grew up in Minnesota, as you know, spent a lot of my career in Iowa at the Des Moines Register and um, and, uh, you know, have gone back every caucus season since 2000. And, uh, you know, it's just the uh, they're they're more and bigger, you know, from a reporter standpoint, it's just an easier place to work. Uh, they're more and bigger hotels. Um, you know, when you go to an event, there's actually parking in Iowa because, you know, they have these big farm fields and you can park yep. anywhere. Um, everything is just more congested here in New Hampshire. So for a Midwestern cat like me, uh, these are more challenging operating conditions. That said, it has not yet snowed on me here in New Hampshire, and I've been here since Thursday. And uh, I survived basically two blizzards in Iowa during the home stretch before the caucuses. I went over there on January 3rd and was there through the 16th. And, uh, you know, two, I, I kept telling, you know, my colleagues from Washington, many of whom couldn't even make it to Iowa because the storms were so bad. I was like, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I've got some credibility when I say that these storms are really, really bad and the road conditions are terrible. So, uh, 
you know, uh, more more comfort maybe for me in Iowa, but uh, nice to have some uh, blacktop and dry roads here in New Hampshire. You know, as you um, talk about uh, the just the condensed feeling of New Hampshire, the storms of Iowa, um, these are really hardy, engaged voters who get out. And this is this is part of their tradition. And as much as Democrats have tried to change the calendar, is there any is there any pushback from New Hampshire voters on Democrats changing the calendar, Biden, you know, running a write in campaign rather than being on the ballot? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that is not popular here among Democrats or Republicans. Uh, you know, and you got to remember, both for Iowa and New Hampshire, this is a big tradition in their state. It's also big, you know, in their economies, not, you know, not from a macroeconomic scale. I mean, Iowa's gross product is, is huge compared to what the caucuses actually bring into the state. But from a publicity standpoint, the national, international coverage, um, you know, these things are really big events for both of these states. So um, for New Hampshire to sort of lose half of the equation is uh, is not popular here. Um, you know, the, the, the calendar re, rejiggering that, has, that will really make South Carolina the first, you know, true uh, DNC-sanctioned contest um, in early February. So that, that's one other thing. I mean, there was some speculation that a lot of Democrats might play in the Republican caucuses, or I'm sorry, in the Republican primary here in New Hampshire. Um, there isn't any evidence of that. You had to change your voter registration. I think it was like back in October and state officials are saying it was like, you know, three or 4,000 people did that, but not a, not a huge wave of Democrats who, you know, became independents or Republicans in time to participate in the primary. Um, so, you know, it, it's uh, the, the write-in campaign will be interesting. Obviously, the Dean Phillips story is a, is a big deal there in Minnesota, um, and that'll be another interesting thing to watch here on, on Tuesday night to see how the president's write-in campaign goes and how, how Dean Phillips' campaign goes. My guest is John McCormick. He's a correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. He's a Minnesota native. He's covered the primaries and caucus uh, presidential campaigns for uh, two decades plus now. Uh I like to say that because it makes makes you feel as experienced uh, and aged as I am. Um, John, talk yeah, about yeah, I look the, around on the campaign trail and I increasingly am one of the older guys, which uh, yeah. my wife says I should grow up and find a real job. But we'll we'll see. I do. It is fun. It is fun. Um, talk about Dean Phillips. What what do people look for? Obviously, you've covered the Republican candidates, but is there chatter, as they say in the Northeast? Is there chatter about Dean Phillips? You know, I, I, I'm not going to take a hard swing at that one just because I haven't spent time at his events in the last few days. I wrote a little bit about him when he was announcing and getting ready to run. Um, but, you know, I, he's certainly not mentioned at all at any of the Republican events. I haven't heard a single Republican voter uh, here in the state mention him. So, um, you know, I, it, I just don't have a good feel for, for what he's going to be able to do here. Um, that said, I, I, I ran into a, a activist for a progressive group out here who was telling people to, you know, trying to lean on independent voters who can vote in this Republican primary, telling them to go vote for Nikki Haley, because they think that's the best option to try to keep Trump from winning the nomination and the presidency again. So some progressives here in the state are actually, you know, trying to focus more on the Republican primary than on what might be going on with Mr. Phillips and and President Biden. When you think about, um, the, the stretch here, um, 
do voters, I mean, do voters you talk to, I know voters who participate in primaries and caucuses are more hardcore, but I, my sense is that we're going to have to have a different pace this presidential year. Um, and part of that is because this thing could be a two-way race for the presidency earlier than tradition, certainly most recent tradition. And I, I don't wonder if voters, you know, everyday voters aren't, you know, tuned out or not spending as much time on it. Yeah, they may be tuned out or they some of them are going to actually be putting earplugs in their ears to not want to hear about it. I mean, this this potential seems like the most likely scenario is that we have a general election versus, um, you know, President Biden and former President Trump. And the polling is extremely negative on that uh, on that race. And so, you know, people are, uh, you know, going to if, if that's if we have. Trump emerging as a de facto nominee pretty early in this year. That just means that that race that nobody, you know, or, or most people don't want to see uh, is going to play out for an even longer period of time. And so, uh, you know, uh, I, I plan to take a little bit of time off once this primary is over. There'll be time for the general election. I think, you know, the conventions will obviously, you know, ramp things up this summer. And, and you know, probably from July on, the thing will be full blast. Now, you know, every I, I do talk to voters here, Republicans who say, you know, boy, there, there could be some other shoe that drops here. We just don't know. Every, everybody seems to think that, like, something major could happen. Like, these, both of these guys are old. You never know what's going to happen with their health. Um, you know, Trump, Trump is obviously facing, you know, numerous uh, criminal uh, prosecutions and charges. And, you know, what happens there? Would, what, what happens in a scenario if the Republicans go to a convention? And, uh, you know, they have a, a former president uh, convicted of some crime and awaiting sentencing. Like, we've never seen that before. And so, you know, you, you'd have to have a, uh, you know, you have to have a little bit of imagination of what possibilities that might happen later in this year. I'm not saying that they will, but um, we just probably should, you know, all take, you know, this presidential election, you know, one day, one week, one month at a time, because, um, you know, we used to... Prior to Trump, we used to sort of know how presidential campaigns played out typically, but he's he's upset a lot of traditions and rules. And so I think it's best to just uh, remain very, uh, uh, you know, active and, and monitoring things. And, and yeah. you know, some major developments could happen at any point. Yeah, those are the kinds of things that I hear about uh, when I'm talking to people is, well, is this going to be the two of them? How do we know? It's only January. When you um, are talking to voters or you're watching voters in town halls, what are what are the issues they are talking about? And are they hardcore party issues or are they, you know, broader macro issues that we follow more closely once the race gets going? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll talk a little bit more about sort of what I think I saw in Iowa because I just went to so many more town halls there. As things move here into New Hampshire, the, the pace just really quickens. And uh, like Haley has been taking very few questions from from voters, um, whereas, you know, prior to the Iowa caucuses, she was doing a ton of that. Pretty much every event, she'd have a town hall and take lots and lots of questions. And you do you tend to hear, you know, um, especially at her events, you'll you sort of start hearing some themes. Some themes are, you know, talk to us about foreign policy. You're, you know, very pro-Ukraine. Why do you feel that way? Um, you know, tell us about your views on abortion. Um, you know, would you support this many weeks or that many weeks uh, for a national standard? Um, you know, people are always asking about the economy and jobs. I mean, that's sort of a standard of any presidential campaign. Um, you know, Trump doesn't really 
take voter questions. I guess he did some town halls on uh, you know, CNN earlier in the cycle, but his yep. events are, are rallies that are sort of one-way communication from him on the stage to the voters, so you don't really see a lot of voter interaction with him. Uh, but, you know, when you talk to voters waiting to get into his events, um, you know, there's a really strong uh, love for the guy among among his supporters. I, I Before the caucuses, I spent some time up in a county not far from the Minnesota border, um, Hancock County, Iowa, which um, was skeptical of Trump in 2016, but then has come around to him in a huge way. And he ended up winning like two thirds of the caucus vote there. And I talked to a lot of rural voters, you know, about him and why they feel so strongly about him. And, uh, you know, they, they love his business experience. A lot of them are farmers and they say, well, we're small business owners. We like the fact that this guy's made payroll before and knows that there's risks in dealing with business. Um, and so, you know, it just, it, it depends on sort of who you're talking to, but um, those are some of the, the things that I've heard from voters over the last few months. Um, John McCormick, as we wrap up here, you said you're going to take some time away. Um, is it your sense that there there is a tune-in or a tune-out mode different this session or this cycle than other cycles? Um, you know, I... I don't know if I can answer that. I, I think people are really burned out on politics, uh, you know, except for the hardest core activists. I mean, if you're a party activist for either of the party, you know, then politics is sort of your day-to-day life. But I think for a lot of average people, if you just talk to people in a diner, I was talking to a guy, you know, in a diner here in New Hampshire the other morning, and, you know, they, 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 they monitor this stuff, but not in the way that, you know, political professionals do. And, um, you know, I think there's just a lot of, you know, sort of sadness, too, in the country that, that, that the country has become so partisan, so divided, people can't seem to agree on anything. And um, so I sort of detect that from a lot of people, too, just, just sort of sadness and resignation to sort of how the country got to this place and, and when will that change. And, of course, that's part of Nikki Haley's message. She's arguing, hey, you can turn the page with me. We need a new generation. We need to look at the future and not the past. And, uh, you know, Trump brings chaos wherever he goes. Um, but it doesn't seem like that is selling with a lot of the Republican base, uh, at least in the proportion that she would need to, to pull up, you know, pull out a win, uh, with the GOP primary electorate. John McCormick, I know we'll catch up down the trail in this even number deer, uh, as you follow the presidential race. Thanks for joining me on Sunday take. Hey, thank you. Take care. This week's take when we come back. Welcome back to Sunday Take. This week's take is really about the pace this week, this year. I have noticed that in election years, I seem to just keep up. And no matter what the pace is required, I'll try to keep it. Governor's races offer a unique pace. But I started thinking about the pace of the voter, the pace of the news consumer, and the pace of this campaign year and these races. And it's January. And I thought to myself, between social media and news coverage, cable news and others, there's a foregone conclusion. There's a assumption of what's going to happen. And I'm reminded that as I started doing this work 
some 26 years ago and analyzing races that it was August, September, October when we started to try to crystallize what the mood of the race was. And I don't know if it's just the constant information stream now or the state of the parties and the candidates and the inherent incumbency of both Trump and Biden. But it strikes me that we should not be jumping to conclusions about November in January, not just in politics, but maybe even in life. Because life throws us curveballs and campaigns are predictably volatile. People ask me, how do we know or how can we change these candidates? And as we talked to Dean Phillips earlier, you heard from him about how he's tried to change the process. The other interesting dynamic is that the institutions have become so self-serving that competition, an American value that we seem to be losing, is gone. I've said that I think there's a one in three chance that either Trump or Biden are not on the ballot in November. And I still think that's true. I think there is volatility ahead. So cable networks and Twitter insight and talk radio podcast hosts, including me, should be careful before we predict the future. After all, as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Jesse Ventura's election and discussed that with Mary LaHammer last week, that quote shocked the world. And nobody knew what was going to happen with Ventura until maybe September, probably October, but nobody was sure. After all, we're not sure about what's going to happen on Election Day until Election Day. And so I remind myself not to forecast, not to project strongly what I think is going to happen. Because I think the mood of the electorate is as moody as ever. I also think that the vast majority of the normal people, as I call them, are tuned out. As I'm on the road this weekend observing others from around the country on a trip to Boston, I find that of the dozens and dozens of conversation I heard in the hotel lobby or at the bar or hockey rink or restaurant, that nobody was talking politics. They were talking about their kids. They were talking about their jobs. They were talking about their economy. They were talking about their marriages, their their family. Those are normal conversations. And even though I do this show every Sunday and follow politics closely, it's the downside, downtime that makes us reflect and understand and appreciate a certain difference of pace and life from politics. So as we sit here in January, I hope that you remind me if I project too much or predict too early 
this election year, and I would urge all of you to do the same. From politicians to pundits to reporters to operatives. We don't know what's going to happen in November. And so let's pace ourselves much more deliberately this election year. That's the take for the week. I'm Blois Olson. I'll be with Vanita Monday through Thursday at 620. You can always sign up for our newsletters at fluence-newsletters.com. Next week, Mayors Melvin Carter and Jacob Fry on the Sunday Take together about the future and the challenges and opportunities in our cities. Thanks for listening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.